The following message, entitled The Backwards Conqueror, part 26 of the series I Am the Book of John, was given by Stephen Altrogi on June 3, 2012 at Sovereign Grace Church of Indiana, Pennsylvania. To learn more about our church, please visit sgcindianapa.org. I haven't met you yet. My name's Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for being here this morning. We are going to be in the book of John this morning. We are continuing on in our series in the book of John. So if you could please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, starting in verse 12. The title of this morning's message is The Backwards Conqueror. The Backwards Conqueror. And we're going we're gonna to see an interesting picture of Jesus this morning coming into the city of Jerusalem. As I was thinking about, this is a familiar story to a lot of us, Jesus riding in on a donkey into the city of Jerusalem. But as I was thinking about this story and I was thinking about when the President of the United States, or POTUS, as those of us who have watched too much of 24 like to call him, when he enters a particular city, detailed preparations are made for his entrance into the city. They plan the route out meticulously. They place snipers on rooftops to watch every building and window, making sure that there's no suspicious activity, scanning the area for any possible danger. The Secret Service walks around the presidential limo and behind the presidential limo, and trailing behind the presidential limo is a suburban full of Secret Service agents just on the lookout for things. And the limo itself, the presidential limo itself, is pretty impressive. Now, unfortunately, uh, a lot of the details about the limo are classified because of security reasons. So I turn to the place that everyone turns to when they need highly accurate, possibly classified information, which is Wikipedia. And so here are some things that people think are on the presidential limo. And I think some of this... I saw a special on the History Channel on this, so that practically makes me an expert. So I think some of these things are true, too. Um, The presidential limo has military-grade armor that is at least five inches thick, run-flat tires that can drive for an extended period of time, even if the tires get completely punctured. Doors, the doors on the the limo weigh apparently as much as the cabin door of a Boeing, Boeing 757, its own oxygen supply in case of a biochemical attack, tear gas in the front bumper, countermeasure smoke grenades in case of a a missile attack, and then, I thought this was really interesting, a blood bank of the president's blood type in the trunk in case he needs a transfusion. I mean, it's incredible, isn't it? And the way, it's interesting, the way an important person enters a city tells us something about that person. And so with the president 
we see just how important he is by the way he enters a city. And in the passage we're going to read this morning, we're going to see Jesus entering the city of Jerusalem. And the way he enters, it is significant. Because it tells us something about who he is and what his mission is. So let's read this together. Let's read John 12, starting in verse 12 down to verse 26. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your King is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about Him and had been done to Him. The crowd that had been with Him when He called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised Him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet Him was, what, was that they had heard He had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after Him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must Follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let's pray together. Father, our desire this morning is that we would know you more. And that we would love you more. And that we would... Love the Son, Jesus, more and the Holy Spirit more. Lord, we need You to come now and help us understand Your Word and speak to us, God. I pray that You would affect us with Your Word. Lord, so easily our hearts are are cold and insensitive to Your Word. My heart is so cold so often toward Your Word. Affect us with Your Word this morning, Lord. Help me preach effectively for Your glory, Lord. Thank You, Father. We thank You for Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen. This passage that we just read, uh, it comes shortly after Jesus raised Lazarus 
from the dead. And if you were here last week, you remember that my dad preached on Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And when Jesus raised Lazarus, it caused a serious ruckus. When people heard what had happened, when people heard that this man Lazarus, who had been dead for four days, had been raised from the dead, people start to flock out to Jesus in droves. They want to see Jesus. And people start to believe in Jesus as the Messiah and as the Savior. And the religious leaders, they start to get all worked up into this Pharisee fury because it seemed like everybody was going out to follow Jesus and all their plans against Jesus were being thwarted and they couldn't stop people from believing in Jesus. And just a few, and just a few verses earlier, you see that the Pharisees even made this secret sort of undercover cloak and dagger plan to assassinate Lazarus to try and stop people from believing in Jesus. And then in verse 12, we see Jesus heading to Jerusalem, which was where all the religious leaders were. He is heading straight to Jerusalem. And this is important for us because it shows Jesus striding boldly, going boldly to Jerusalem, even though He knew what was coming. He knew that when he got to Jerusalem, he knew that, knew that shortly thereafter, his death would come. And yet we see Jesus striding boldly into Jerusalem. He knows that he's going to be arrested. He knows that he's going to be beaten. He knows that he's going to die on the cross for our sins. He knows that he's going to take the wrath of God for our sins. And yet, and I love this, he doesn't shrink back one bit. He doesn't hold back. He doesn't sneak into Jerusalem under the cover of night. He doesn't go in wearing camo. He goes to the cross. I love this. Jesus went to the cross boldly for me and for you. He went to the cross boldly. He willingly laid down His life for us so that we could be rescued from our sins, and he goes courageously into Jerusalem. This is the kind of king I want to follow, don't you? Isn't this the kind of king you want? A king who boldly goes and rescues us out of our sin, boldly goes to the cross on our behalf. A bold, loving, courageous king who rescues me. That's the kind of king I want to follow. And it was, at this time, it was the Passover feast. And Jerusalem would have been jam-packed with people. Thousands and thousands of people coming to Jerusalem to celebrate this Passover feast. And when the people hear that Jesus is coming, they want to see Him. They want to get a glimpse of this guy. And so thousands and thousands of people, they go to the entrance of the city. They jam into the entrance of the city because they want to catch a glimpse of this guy, Jesus, who, the miracle worker who raised Lazarus from the dead. And they want to see this guy, this Jesus guy. And so look down at verse 12. It says, The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. A buzz starts to spread. Jesus is coming. 
hey, did you hear Jesus is coming? And so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And so as Jesus is coming in to Jerusalem, the crowd lines the street. And they all have palm branches. And I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of the the victory parades that happened after World War II. But in those pictures, you'll see thousands and thousands of people crammed along the streets, waving flags and cheering. And there's confetti falling like snow because they're so full of joy and celebration. And these palm branches that the people had, palm branches were a symbol of victory and of joy. And these people are waving palm branches, and what they're doing is they are hailing Jesus as a victor and a conqueror and a king. And so there's almost like a makeshift parade happening with Jesus coming into Jerusalem, people waving palm branches, and they're crying out, Hosanna! Which is a word that means, save us, O Lord. And they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. See, here's what these people think. They think that Jesus is a warrior Messiah. They think that Jesus is going to come in as a warrior and save them from the oppression of the Romans and start kicking some serious Roman butt. They think that Jesus is going to be the king of Israel, and that he's going to set the people of Israel free from the Romans. They had these high military expectations of Jesus. And then Jesus does something a little bit unexpected. See, how would you expect a warrior Messiah to ride into the city? Maybe on a large, muscular war horse, a white war horse, kind of like Shadowfax and Lord of the Rings, with a large flashing sword hanging from his belt, company of soldiers surrounding him. That's what I'd be expecting. Or maybe in a chariot being driven by a, a servant or one of those big Humvees that has the machine gun on top. That's what you expect with a warrior. You expect him to come in in power. He's the Messiah, the Deliverer. And you expect the guns to be blazing, right? But that's not what he does. He rides in on a young donkey. Not a muscular war horse, but a donkey. Not a golden chariot driven by a servant. This would be like the president entering a city in a Ford Festiva. Now why does Jesus do this? Why? What is so significant about Jesus riding into the city, not on a war horse, but on a donkey? Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I'll be your king. I will be your king. I will be your Messiah. I will be your deliverer, but not like you expect. I'm not going to be the ruler you think I'm going to be. I'm not going to be a deliverer like you think I'm going to be a deliverer. I'm not going to ride in on a war horse. I'm going to ride in on a donkey. And in doing this, Jesus, he fulfills a prophecy from Zechariah 9. If you have your Bible, flip over to Zechariah 9, uh, verses 9 to 11. 
Zechariah is one of those books that's like nearly impossible to find in the Bible. It's toward the end of the Old Testament. Zechariah 9, 9 to 11. Here's what it says. Oh, isn't technology great? They can just bring it up for us. It says this. This is a prophecy that referred to the coming Messiah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is He. But look, what kind of king is he? Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also... Because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. When Jesus comes into Jerusalem, He doesn't come as everyone expects Him to come. He comes in humility. Jesus comes in humility and gentleness riding on a donkey. This, should, this really should blow our minds. Jesus is the King of kings. He's the one that angels worship. He's the one that all heaven adores. And if He wanted to, the angels would have carried Him into Jerusalem on their shoulders. They would have massacred His enemies if He wanted them to. And yet Jesus comes riding in, humble and gentle, on a donkey. He doesn't enter with His entourage. And their black escalades in a parade behind him. He comes in riding on a donkey. Jesus, our King, our great, awesome, mighty King who created the world, who sustains the world, is also humble and gentle and lowly in spirit. And he comes riding in in humility. And flip over to Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus says this about himself. I love what he says about himself in Matthew eleven twenty eight. These are I think these are some of the most comforting verses in all of the Bible. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Aren't those incredible verses about our King? Some of you need rest so bad right now. You have so totally messed up your life and you have pressures coming at you from every side and you don't know how to escape and you feel like you're going to suffocate and maybe some of you have even considered suicide to get out of this. Can I tell you something? I'm so glad you're here this morning so that you can hear these words from Jesus. He wants to give you rest from your soul. 
He wants to give you rest. He wants to give you peace. Maybe because of drugs or a toxic relationship or something at work, things have suddenly, it seems like your life has suddenly spiraled out of control and you have no idea what to do. And I want to encourage you, Jesus, hear the words of Jesus. Come to Jesus today and make him your king. If you make Jesus your king, and if you stop trying to be your own king, and if you make Jesus your king, he will give you rest for your soul. That doesn't necessarily mean that all the circumstances are going to go away. But you know what it does mean? It means Jesus gives rest for the soul. That's what you need. That's what I desperately need. We all desperately need rest. And Jesus is a humble, lowly, gentle king. He is king and you need to make him king. But he's a gentle king who gives rest for the soul. So I just want to appeal to you today, and I'd love to talk to you more about this afterwards. If you keep trying to be king of your own life, your life is going to keep spiraling out of control. Because you're a bad king. I'm a bad king. We're all bad kings of our own life. Jesus must be our king, and we must bow to him and make him king. So come to Jesus for rest. If you need rest for your soul, come to Christ. Some of you who are are already Christians, and yet you're feeling overwhelmed by the cares of life. Your job is killing you. Your health is killing you. Taking care of someone is killing you. Loneliness is killing you. Look down at at verse 15. Look down at at John, in, in John. Look down at verse 15 again the prophecy for Zechariah, from Zechariah. What, what are the first words of that prophecy? Fear not. Aren't those wonderful words? Fear not. Those are sweet words. Jesus is your king and he wants you not to fear. Jesus is king. He rules over everything over the solar systems, over the galaxies. He numbers the hairs on your head. Even though you've shaved your head to try to hide that number, He rules over everything. Jesus is King. He knows the grains of sand on the beach. He keeps, the Bible says, He keeps the universe in order by the word of His mouth. And you know what He tells you? Fear not. Aren't those sweet words? He's gentle. Even though our King is great, even though Jesus is our King and He's great, He's also gentle and lowly and He wants to give you rest. That's the kind of King I need. I need that kind of King. I need a King who can give me rest. I need a King who can carry me. And so I want to encourage you this morning. I want you to hear Jesus encouraging you. Run to Jesus in the middle of your distress. Run to Him. Quit trying to bear the load on your own. Trust in Him. Hope in Him. Cast your cares upon Him. The job of a king, the very job of a king is to defend His people and to care for His people. Let Jesus do that. Quit trying to carry the load on your own. You can keep trying to carry your burdens if you want, but they're going to crush you in the end. And so I would encourage you to run to Jesus in your distress. And you may need to run to Him a hundred times in a day. That burden may feel like it comes back a hundred times in a day. And every time it comes back, 
need to give it to the Lord and say, Lord, I cannot carry this on my own. This is killing me. This is crushing me. Whatever it is, whether it's your job, your finances, friendships, whatever it is, run to Jesus with your cares because He wants to do the heavy lifting. Let Him do the heavy lifting because He's a humble and gentle King. And that's the kind of King we need, isn't it? But the disciples in the crowds, they don't understand this. They don't understand what sort of Messiah Jesus is going to be. So look down at verses 16 to 18. It says, His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about Him and had been done to Him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. When the disciples saw all this happening, when the crowd saw all this, they didn't understand. They they really did not understand who Jesus was or what his mission was. They knew that Jesus had done something baffling. That he, had ri- that he had risen somebody from the dead after four days of being dead. But they didn't understand what sort of king Jesus was going to be. And they flocked to him. The people flocked to him because they knew he was a miracle worker. And that he did miracles. And this is actually very encouraging to me. And I think it should be encouraging to you. Some of you, you don't really understand Jesus. And you want to. And you've been coming here and you're, you're still trying to figure out this whole Jesus Christianity thing. Or maybe you're, you're just a brand new Christian and you feel like, I don't know anything. I, don't, I, don't, I know that Genesis is in the beginning. I don't know anything more than that. And you know what? I think Jesus would want to encourage you. He is so patient with us. He was so patient with his disciples the, the, the disciples, I think the reason the disciples are in the Bible is to give those of us who are dense encouragement. Because the disciples did not get it again and again and again, but Jesus was so patient with them. And so if you're feeling like, you know what, I, I want to know about Jesus, I want to understand Jesus, but I just I don't get it sometimes. I'm so glad you're here. Jesus wants to be patient with you, and if you ask Jesus to let, him, to let you know him, he will. He wants you to know Him. He wants you to understand Him. And He's patient with you. And I, want, I don't, wouldn't want anyone here to feel like they have to have it all together before they can be here. Jesus is patient with us as we learn about Him. He's been patient with me. He's been so patient with me. If you ask any person who's been a Christian for any length of time, they'll tell you that Jesus has been patient with them. And He'll be patient with you too. And then look down at verse 19. The Pharisees say something very profound, and yet they have no idea what they're saying. They don't even know what they're saying. They say, it says, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you're gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. They're so frustrated. They are so ticked off because all their planning and their scheming to stop Jesus is turning out to be nothing. And to them it feels like everybody's going after Jesus. They can't stop Him. They can't stop people from going out to see and hear Jesus, the miracle worker. 
And so they say, look, we're not getting anywhere. The whole world's going out to see him. And they don't quite realize what they're saying. Look down at the next verse in verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, non-Jews, from other parts of the world. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And some Greeks, they come to Philip, who's one of Jesus' disciples, and and they say, can we see Jesus? Can we meet this guy? And it doesn't tell us why they wanted to meet Jesus. Maybe they were curious. Maybe they wanted to know more about him. But when Philip and Andrew and the Greeks go to Jesus, something really strange happens. Look at verse 23. It says, And Jesus answered him, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come. Here's why this is strange. It's because all up until this point, Jesus has been saying, now is not the time. Not yet. The hour's not here yet. No, the hour's not here. He said it multiple times. And then finally, when these Greeks come, something happens. The hour has come for the Son of of man to be glorified. The appearance of these Greeks is like a red-hot signal flare being launched into the sky telling Jesus that the time for His death and glorification is quickly approaching. See, remember when the Pharisees said that the whole world is going out to Jesus? It really is starting to happen. Because first the Greeks come, but then through Jesus' death and resurrection, He rescues Thousands and thousands and millions and millions of people from all over the world. The Pharisees had no idea what they were saying. The whole world would be seeing Jesus. Jesus would save men and women from every single corner of the world by His death and resurrection. Millions upon millions of people from every tribe are going to receive Jesus and believe in Jesus and have their sins forgiven. And this isn't just about the Jews anymore. It's starting to expand. And Jesus is saying, okay, okay, it's time. And this passage is like a hinge for the whole book of John. This is where things start to slow way down. And it begins for the rest of John to focus on the short time until Jesus would die. And so Jesus says, the hour is here for me to finish my mission, to die on the cross so that millions will be saved. And then in verse 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus' mission was to die. If if you're around our church for any length of time, you'll notice that we... We seem to talk a lot about Jesus' death and resurrection. Do you know why that is? It's because that was Jesus' mission. That was His central purpose, was to save people through His death and His resurrection. And if Jesus didn't die, He couldn't bear much fruit. He couldn't save millions and millions. He wouldn't be able to save us if He didn't die, but He did die. And look at the fruit. 
I'm the fruit. You're the fruit. Look around the room. We are all gathered together. Sometimes, one of the things I love to do in worship sometimes is when everyone's singing, I love to just turn around and look at people. And hopefully that doesn't creep you out. And if it does, sorry. I'm not trying to creep you out. One of the reasons I like doing that is because I love seeing all the different people that God has saved gathered together, people who would never in a bazillion years be hanging out together, and yet here we all together in the same room praising Jesus for saving us. I love doing that. I love seeing people just singing to Jesus, and that's because He died and rose again, and we are the fruit of His death and resurrection. And Christians all over Indiana and all throughout the world are the fruit of Christ's death and His resurrection. Hundreds, I love this, hundreds of people, all of us gathered together from so many different walks of life, all praising the same risen Savior. Isn't Jesus awesome? Isn't that awesome? And this, I think this should be an encouragement for us too because I really believe that in Indiana County, there is so much fruit to be harvested. God is working all around us, all throughout Indiana. There's so much fruit to be harvested. And there are thousands of people in this town who, apart from Christ, will go to hell. And yet, Jesus said He died to produce much fruit. And Jesus wants to save thousands and thousands of people in this area. I hope this stirs us up and fires us up to be praying that God would do this. Bob prayed earlier that Jesus would send out laborers for the harvest. And so we want to be praying that God would do great things in Indiana. We want to be praying that that God would save many, many thousands here in this town because that's why Jesus died on the cross. That was His purpose. To save many thousands and millions around the world, millions of people from hell. And you know what I would love to see? I'd love to see in Indiana a real, true, genuine revival where thousands of people are under the conviction of God for their sins and they turn and they believe in Jesus and all the gospel-preaching churches in this town are packed to the rafters and the doors are blown out. Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't that be fantastic? I'm praying that we see on IUP a harvest like we've never seen before. Because Jesus said, if a kernel dies, then it produces much fruit. Jesus' death, He intends to produce much fruit from His death and resurrection. So can I ask you to do this? Can you please be praying that God would be all over the place putting you in contact with people to share the gospel with? They're all, God is working in people's lives all over at work at school, friends that you have, neighbors, the guy in the cubicle next to you. God's working all over the place. I'd love it if we, and I know this initially this idea can seem unappealing, but I'd love it if we had to go to two services, and then we had to go to three services, just because more and more people were getting saved. Because more and more people were believing in Jesus. And so, I believe God wants to do that. He does want to bring revival and restoration. And He wants to see, Jesus wants to see the fruit of His death. He wants to see that. 
all over. And so can we be earnestly praying for that? Can you write that? If you have a prayer list or I don't know, whatever you do, my mom always writes on her hand. So, Mom, I guess you could write this on your hand now. Can you be praying this week, earnestly praying that God would save thousands of people in this area? Can you be praying that? Write it on your, whatever it is you remind yourself to pray with. Write it down. And pray hard that that God would save thousands here in Indiana. Now Jesus, His death, it was unique. His death, death and resurrection have done something we could never do. He paid for our sins. He accomplished our forgiveness and our salvation. But Jesus also calls us to follow His example. Look down at verses 25 and 26. It says, Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And in these verses, Jesus calls us to follow after him no matter what it costs. To lose our life for his sake. He even uses the word hate our life. For his sake. Now, this doesn't mean that we go, go around like intentionally inflicting pain on ourselves because we hate our life for the sake of Jesus. What this means is that we always give up our will for Jesus' will, no matter what the cost. Anytime Jesus' will and my will conflict, Jesus wins. I lose my life for the sake of Jesus, my preferences, my desires, my will for the sake of of Jesus. We obey Jesus no matter what. We have to give up. I always submit my life and my desires to Jesus. And there are times, and I know you can relate to this, there are times when obeying Jesus feels like dying, doesn't it? When it feels like a part of you is dying. To forgive someone who has sinned against you can feel like part of you is dying. To not give in to lust can feel like part of you is dying. And right now, maybe some of you are coming face to face with the high cost of following Jesus. And maybe you're in a, maybe you're in a job that you know you need to get out of because it's affecting your faith and your walk with the Lord. Or, or maybe you're taking care of your elderly parents and it's just draining on you. It's hard. It's hard work. Or maybe you need to forgive someone. And man, it is hard to forgive, isn't it? It is hard to forgive. But you know what? This is what it means to follow Jesus. It means to lay down everything and follow after Him. It means that I die to what I want and I do what Christ wants. That's what it means to follow Jesus. I die to what I want and I do what Christ wants. And maybe some of you are wondering, is it really worth it? Is all this 
work and stress and pain of trying to follow after Jesus, is it really worth it? And you know what? I want you to hear the words of of Jesus this morning. It is worth it. It is worth it. It is so worth it. Look at what Jesus says at the end of verse 26. Oh, I love this. Jesus says, if anyone serves me, what? The Father will honor him. If anyone serves me, if we follow after Jesus and we die to ourselves, what does God do? He says he'll honor us. Isn't that amazing? God Himself will honor us when we follow after Christ and sacrifice for Christ. Isn't that what you want? I want to hear, I want to hear God say to me on the final day when I stand before Him, I want to hear Him say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what I want to hear. I know that's what you want to hear. And I know that when I hear those words, I know that all the sacrifice is going to seem like nothing and like garbage. Everything I gave up, it's going to seem like garbage when I hear those words. And some of you, so many of you, I love this church because you all are such an example of this. So many of you are pleasing Jesus so much right now by the way you are sacrificing. Ah, there are so many of you in this church who you are so pleasing to Jesus by how you're sacrificing. You're so pleasing to God by how you're serving Jesus and following after Jesus, even when it's hard and it feels like part of you is dying. Some of you have sacrificed friendships because you know that you, you just can't be in that friendship anymore because it draws you away from Christ. And I want you to know the Father honors you. And He's pleased with you. And He's going to honor you. Some of you are in the battle, constant battle of, forgiveness and anger towards someone and you're battling hard to be gracious and patient and forgiving and and you know what god honors you he's so pleased with you he is so pleased that you are fighting that fight for him that's so pleasing to jesus some of you may not have gotten married yet and you've been waiting a long time to get married but you haven't gotten married because you know you can't marry someone that's not a christian And you've been waiting for a long time. And you know what? God honors you. He does. He honors you. I want you to feel His pleasure in you this morning. That's a sacrifice for Christ. And that honors God. The Father is so pleased with you and He has rewards stored up for all of you. See, this is how Jesus works. He's he's a backwards king. We live by dying. He comes in on a donkey. He's a backwards conqueror. He rewards us when we serve Him. He comes in humility and gentleness. He's the King of kings, but He's lowly. And He saves the world by death. And to follow Jesus, we must be willing to die to ourselves as as well. And Jesus wants to help us do that. And so right now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray... But after the meeting, I really believe God wants to encourage two groups of people. And there's going to be people up here to pray for you. And I want to invite you up for prayer. The first group is those of you who, you know there's something that you need to sacrifice. 
for Jesus, and you're having a really hard time doing it. And you want to, but it's just hard. And we just want to pray for you, just that God would encourage you, give you strength, help you do it. And the other group is those of you who you feel like you are sacrificing, and you are serving, and you're giving so much, and you just feel worn out and tired. And you just need some strength and need to be refreshed. And we'd love to pray for you for that as well. And really, if there's anything else you want to pray for, we want to pray for you. When you come down front, no one is thinking, oh, I wonder what that guy's problem is. All of us need prayer all the time. So what I'd like to do now is if I could have the band come up, we're going to sing, and I'm just going to close with prayer, and then we're going to pray for these groups afterwards. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are a humble, gentle, lowly king. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you meet us in our weakness. Lord, I pray that you would help us lay everything down for Jesus. Jesus, you're worth it. You're so worth it. Pray for those who are struggling to sacrifice a particular thing, that you would meet them now. Pray for those who are weary, that you would meet them now. Pray that that those who feel their sacrifices very acutely would feel your pleasure in them right now and how much you delight in what they're doing. Thank you, Father. Help us this week, Father. We do ask that you would bring much revival and fruit in Indiana, Pennsylvania and in the areas around here. Lord, that's what we want, God. We want to see so many people come to know Jesus because Jesus, that was your mission to die and rise again so you could save millions and millions and that's what we want to see here in Indiana. So please do that, Lord. Lord, we pray that you would, that you would bring the, the most messed up sinners, the most all put together sinners. We, want, we all desperately need you, Jesus. We desperately need you. Thank you, Father. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.